invite your attention to John chapter 20. John, the 20th chapter. Ann Keegan of the Chicago Times Magazine, or excuse me, Chicago Tribune Magazine, wrote about a man by the name of George. George was a homeless man, and all he owned happened to be the clothing on his body and the shoes on his feet. He would usually sleep at the YMCA at night, and during the day, especially cold days, he would linger at a local police station. Officers would give him a couple of dollars for coffee, and he would, uh, at uh, lunch and dinner time, would go down to Billy's Restaurant a few blocks away, where Billy usually gave him meals for free, uh, and uh, he was very grateful for that. George was just a good friend of many people, homeless and struggled. Well, one Christmas, uh, police officers invited George to their home. Uh, they were having a get-together, and uh, they uh, gave George some presents. And George carefully unwrapped them, being careful not to tear the wrapping paper. And when it was over, one of the police officers was driving him back to the YMCA so he could sleep at night. And George asked, he said, now, are these really my presents? And the police officer said, yes. He said, can I keep them? And can I do anything I want to with them? And he said, yes. He said, well, take me to Billy's then. So he went to Billy's restaurant and went in before the restaurant closed. And he delivered the presents to Billy and said, Billy, I want you to have these. And gave them away. As had been done to him, he did to others. He transferred the gift that he had been given to others. And that is much of what we find Jesus does here. Jesus was sent by the Father to the earth in a particular way, and he transfers that to his own people. It reminds me of what uh, the Indian Christian D.T. Nile said. He said that when it comes to sharing the Lord Jesus with the world, we are simply beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. And that indeed is true. In other words, how the Lord has come is precisely how we go. Now, this was a comforting word to the uh, disciples in this day. It really was, because they were locked behind doors for fear of the Jews. In fact, the world they were supposed to reach had scared the daylights out of them. So much so, they were hiding and trembling in fear, and Jesus appeared among, appeared among them and said, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Now, it's entirely appropriate on a day like today, uh, the Sunday before Christmas, to preach on the Great Commission. Uh, in uh, mission studies, we use the Lord Jesus, appropriately so, as a model of the first missionary. He left the comforts of heaven and came to the earth on a saving mission. And we call his approach to ministry an incarnational approach, in for in, and carne, in flesh. In other words, there is a place for radio and literature and other means, impersonal means, of communicating the gospel of Christ, but there is absolutely no substitute for a person in human flesh. For sending missionaries and delivering ourselves in the presence of those who don't know the Lord and delivering the gospel to them face-to-face, heart-to-heart, voice-to-voice. There's no substitute. And beloved, that's really what uh, this Christmas season is about. God in His great mercy sent His Son. And what Jesus does here is that Jesus makes it clear that as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Now we've been commending uh, a vision statement for Beach Haven Baptist Church. And I want to review that with you for just a moment and then continue on. Beach Haven Baptist Church, we're proposing, will follow Jesus Christ as a global church. A mixture of global and local, indicating local and global missions commitments. 
by winning and baptizing and training great commissionaries. That's been a term that we've coined here. People have a heart and practice for the Great Commission of all the nations, tribes, languages, and peoples of the Athens-Clark County region. Now, because of that, on January 4th, I want us to observe a particular Sunday. But before getting into that, I need to put this into biblical context. Uh, We have uh, spoken through the year of the kingdom storyline of the Scripture. And I want us to place ourselves in the right and appropriate place in God's story of redeeming the world. And so let's begin at the beginning. Genesis 1 and 2, we find God created a kingdom for His Son. He loves His Son. He he expects that His Son will inherit the kingdom and that His Son will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's why this world and this universe are here. They were created as a kingdom for Jesus Christ. And Adam and Eve were dispatched to this earth in order to be vice rulers or associate rulers or co-rulers with Jesus Christ. But in Genesis chapter 3, they committed treason against their king. They betrayed him and God sentenced them therefore to the death penalty as he has the whole human race. Because in sinning and violating the one law of God that God gave them, they transferred legal ownership of the world to the prince of the power of the air, the God of this age, the God of the world, Satan himself. And so in the garden with the treason, the betrayal, the first sin, Adam and Eve relinquished legal right of the kingdom to the enemy. From Genesis chapter 4 to Malachi 4, from Genesis 4 to the end of the Old Testament then, God executed or implemented a plan to redeem the earth or to purchase it back for His Son. And He used Abraham, He used Israel, and then the tribe of Judah, and then narrowed it down even further to the family of David. And both Mary and Joseph were uh, members of David's family. So by birth, Jesus is in the line for the throne through Mary, and by legal right through a stepfather, Joseph. And so God initiated His plan through Israel and eventually David to reclaim the earth. From Matthew 1 to John 21, the Gospels, we find a great preview of that kingdom. What will the kingdom in the future look like? What did God intend for the garden to look like? What will the last two chapters of the Bible look like? Well, those can be rather impersonal if you want to understand just how personal and vivid and lively and exhilarating the kingdom is. All you've got to do is look at Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, God intends for the future to look just like Jesus Christ. The Father and the Holy Spirit are intensely Christocentric, and they are all given to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we find of the action and the behavior of Jesus Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is what God is going to perform in all the earth, all the cosmos, all the universe, uh, through His people when the kingdom comes in its full manifestation. But there's something that had to... There's something that had to um, occur when he was here. Humans had to pay the death penalty for their sins, but they cannot because they are sinners themselves. Only God can save, but God cannot die the death penalty for human sin. Therefore, God became a human. Only God can save. Only humans could die. Therefore, the God-man, Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. And that's why there was a birth in Bethlehem. There was a birth in Bethlehem because we needed a death at Calvary and we needed a resurrection at the empty tomb is what we needed. Therefore, God took on human flesh. Well, to get that news out to the world, He established embassies around the earth. 
We call them churches and staff them with the diplomatic corps that we call Christians, witnesses, or ambassadors for Christ. And from Acts 1 to Revelation 5, we find the unfolding of that particular story. Well, one day the king will withdraw these terms of peace is what he'll do. He will withdraw the terms of peace. There's a shelf life. There's an expiration on these terms of peace. You see, we go into the world, into the camps of the traitors, into the rebel camps, and declare Jesus Christ is King and Lord. And your king now is offering you reconciliation and grace and mercy. He will cancel the death penalty against you if you will repent and believe the gospel. If you will. And so we go into the world and declare that, but there is a shelf life. There is an expiration date to these terms because one day the Lord will come with a shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God and he will evacuate these embassies as he describes in Revelation chapter 4. And then what we find from Revelation 6 to Revelation 18 will occur the most frightening passages, the most frightening literature in all the earth that humans uh, have ever laid their eyes on in all their history. He will execute the judgments of Revelation. Now, they're not just uh, without purpose. What he's intending to do is to cleanse the earth of all evil and wickedness so that it is a fit earth for the King of kings and Lord of lords. He wants his Son to dwell and live in purity, and he will have it no other way. Jesus Christ has suffered enough. He'll never suffer again. Aren't you glad? Jesus Christ will never have to endure the wickedness, the evil, the sin, the disappointment, the heartbreak of human sinfulness. And He will cleanse all the earth, beginning in Revelation chapter 6 with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's something to which we must give our attention and great attention because that day is coming. So He'll evacuate the embassies and then He will implement uh, the judgments, the king will return and, and, and then eliminate all evil. And in the last two chapters of the Bible, he will restore the kingdom. And it looks an awful lot like the Garden of Eden, only better. It's magnified and expanded precisely as God wanted. Now, because of that, on January the 4th, I'm wanting us to make a life commitment Sunday. We're in the process of thinking through and praying about our future together. And I need your help with this. And so January the 4th, I'm calling upon our church to do two things. One, in the spirit of 2 Chronicles 7.14, I want you to pray at 7.14 every morning. And if not the morning, then the evening. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. We'll pray 2 Chronicles 7.14 at 7.14 each day. And I want you to pray specifically for these things. Revival, your role in the Great Commission, Beach Haven's future and vision, the Act 22 project where we're going to remodel buildings to help our adults, preschoolers, and children in uh, their Sunday school ministry, those who need to make a commitment to Christ. And then we're needing some of you to pray during the worship service uh, beginning in January. And I want you to make one or all of these commitments. And you have got in your worship guide today a, uh, an example of what the form and the commitment form will look like next week. Please take this home, pray through it, sit before the Lord and ask Him for his guidance with this. And then the second thing, not only prayer, but also surrendering all of our resources. If Jesus Christ is king, he is worthy of all we have. 
And so we're calling upon you to surrender your resources, including tithes and offerings. Well, we can find marvelous help for this in John chapter 20, verses 21 through 23. And it is, again, appropriate to look at this as a Christmas text. Here in this text, Jesus gave his disciples peace in their mission, confidence in their mission, by assuring them that he was sending them just like the Father had sent him. Beginning in verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The truth is, is that the Great Commission needs peace to operate and function. There are people that are scared to death to engage in the Great Commission. Well, they've got good company because the disciples were as well. And Jesus seeks to give them peace by saying, I am sending you just like the Father sent me. And in that, you can have peace. Whatever I had on this earth, in my ministry and in my service, you can have as well. The Father is not going to hold out upon, on you at all. You can have precisely and totally what I had for this mission. Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. So we can have peaceful confidence in our mission work when we know that Jesus sends us as the Father sent him at Christmas. And so I've got to tell you, I've got to testify this morning that the most peaceful times in my life have been when I have engaged in the Great Commission. Why? Because the Father has sent me. He has sent ministers. He sent Christians precisely as He sent the Lord Jesus. So this naturally leads to the question, how did the Father send Jesus? And secondly, how does Jesus send us? Well, let me answer that in two ways this morning. First, like the Father, Jesus sends us with the power of the Holy Spirit. There are many people very committed to daily devotions. They read their Bible and they pray every day. They give. They attend one or many more services. They go to all the meetings that we have. They even eat all the meals that we enjoy around the place. And they are asking the question, is this all there is to following Christ? Is this all? I thought I'd tame lions, but I haven't even squashed a few bugs yet. Is this all? One poet wrote, a city full of churches, great preachers, lettered men, grand music, choirs, and organs. If all these fail, what then? Good workers, eager, earnest, who labor hour by hour, but where, oh, where my brother is God's almighty power. Ladies and gentlemen, God didn't make you a pygmy. In the power of the Holy Spirit, God intended you to tame lions and to raise the dead. That is how the Father has sent Jesus and how He has sent us with the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Luke 1.35, when the angel made the announcement to Mary of the virgin conception and birth of Christ, he said, The power of the Holy Spirit shall overshadow you, and you shall conceive and have in your womb the Son of God who will sit upon the throne of his father David. The power of the Holy Spirit is so powerful and strong and capable that, beloved, he can pull off a virgin birth. 
And that's what he did in Luke 1.35. And then Jesus served by the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10, verse 10, Acts chapter 10, verse 38 says that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit, one about doing good, and to use the Mills paraphrase, gave the devil fits every day of his ministry and service. In fact, it may have never occurred to you, but Jesus never did any miracle. Jesus never preached. Jesus never engaged in any form of ministry that we're aware of until after he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And beloved, I want to say to you, the power that God gave the Lord Jesus Christ is available according to God's will to everyone who knows and follows Christ. And this is what Jesus is talking about in this text. In verse 22, he uh, says to them, he breathes, so this is emphatic. The words on them are not really in the text. They're implied by the translators. But he breathed. He sighed. And so this is emphatic. That's what we do whenever we're about to make a, an emphatic statement. We gather ourselves up and then let out the statement. He said, receive the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, fling open your heart and soul wide and receive the Holy Spirit. That's great counsel for this day as well. In a few days, Jesus is implying the Holy Spirit will come to live within you and abide with you forever. And I've got to tell you, friends, that's the best news we can hear on this day. The Holy Spirit is with us. Just like Jesus was in the human body, just like the Son of God was in the human body of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in all believers. Well, there's an awful lot of good news with this found in the Gospel of John. Look with me back in John chapter 3. Verse 34, John chapter 3, verse 34, and we need to do a foot race for a moment through the Gospel of John. Luke and the Gospel of John can both be considered Gospels of the Holy Spirit. Beginning in verse 34 of John chapter 3, here, and then we'll go to John chapter 6. Here's what Jesus said, or excuse me, John the Baptist said, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. Did you know the that God Almighty has no need to economize when it comes to the Holy Spirit. God is not on a budget when it comes to power in your life. You have to have a budget and you have to economize when your financial resources are limited. God knows no resources. So whatever weakness you've got, the Holy Spirit can more than compensate for that. Never ever say to any element of the will of God, I can't do it. If I hear you say that, I'll say you're entirely correct. But if you're humble and surrendered, God can use you and He can perform it through you because He gives His Spirit without measure. Then John chapter 6, verse 63. There's a marvelous connection here between the Holy Spirit and life and the Word. These go together. Verse 63 of John chapter 6. Jesus said here, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And I wish this undisciplined age would hear that. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Whenever we share the Word of God, there is power because the Holy Spirit blesses and anoints His Word. If I ever find resistance when I'm witnessing, I just begin quoting Scripture that comes to mind. And I've seen God break down resistance and put strong men to tears and trembling before the presence of God simply by quoting the Word of God. And then, look with me over in uh, John chapter 15, verse 26. More good news about the Holy Spirit and His ministry. John chapter 15, verse 26. 
Jesus said, when the Helper comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of me. When you open your vocal cords and speak for Christ, the Holy Spirit uses your vocal cords and He testifies for Jesus Christ as well. You may be nervous about telling about Christ, but He never is. He is thrilled and He is overjoyed and zealous and eager to take advantage of the opportunity. The Holy Spirit accompanies you when you speak of Christ. And then we have John chapter 16, verse 8 through 11. Just a page over. John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. And Jesus uses some legal words here that you might find used in a courtroom in the first century and even the 21st century. When He has come, the Holy Spirit, He will convict. Now that's an interesting word. He will cross-examine, He will expose, and He will judge as guilty and convince and persuade. The Holy Spirit will do that. He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in Me. And so He will bother. He will create some upset in the heart of an unbeliever when you speak of Christ because they do not believe in Him. Of righteousness, Jesus said, because I go to my Father. That means Jesus was entirely righteous, therefore He was received by the Father back into heaven. If He had been wrong, if He had been an imposter, heaven would have never received Him at His ascension. But it did because He was entirely true. And though they don't see it, the Holy Spirit will convince them that that indeed is true. And then verse 11, of judgment, because the ruler of this world, Satan himself, is judged. It is a satanic thing to resist Jesus Christ, and Jesus, by His Holy Spirit, interferes with that and turns hearts to Himself. And so all in one moment, when you're sharing the Word of Christ, the Holy Spirit acts as the district attorney for the kingdom of heaven. He acts as the prosecuting attorney. He comes through with power and conviction and convinces men and women of their own guilt before God. And so you have that great resource before Jesus Christ. Hey, I discovered this a number of years ago. The last church I pastored before coming to Beach Haven was a church in Alabama, and it was about the sweetest place in all the earth. Guests would usually leave telling me, this is the friendliest church I've ever been a part of as they were on their way to a restaurant with one of my deacons or Sunday school teachers. That's what they would do. And I really just stepped into that. And they set a good example for me. I think I learned more about pastoral love from that church, that modest and humble church, than I have at any other time in my Christian life. It was a marvelous, lovely place And lost people would converge upon the place. Broken people, hurt people, wealthy people, people from the gutter, all over, all types. It was a marvelous thing. Very encouraging. It's the kind of thing you want to see happen in every place and on the earth. It was marvelous. Intense, loving fellowship. People quick to serve. I I didn't have to hardly push their buttons at all to get them to do anything. In fact, after being there a few months, I had to start holding them back. They're about to spend too much money is what they were doing. It was, a, it was a tender, intense, spirit-filled fellowship of people that loved intensely and abandoned themselves and gave themselves away in every conceivable fashion. Uh, and um, uh, it, it was a marvelous church to pastor. But there was one Sunday when someone showed up, one Sunday morning, and left and sent word back to us, back to our leadership, that we were judgmental. 
Now, no one else said that about us. And I remember looking back at the sermon I had preached on that particular Sunday morning, and it was a Christ-exalting message, I believe. It probably could have been preached better by a better preacher, but uh, I, I don't think I said much that day that could have been interpreted that way. And it dawned on me what was happening. That person was in a place electrified by the Holy Spirit and His love. And that person felt judged. You know what was happening? The Holy Spirit was convicting that person, and that person didn't know what to do with it. Or may have been resisting that. I want to say to you, here at Beach Haven, you're in a similar church. These people are zealous to love, and if you're feeling uncomfortable today... I hope that's not our fault, but I want to ask you to consider, if you're uncomfortable today, it might be that the Holy Spirit is graciously touching some tender spots on your heart, trying to break you down so you'll humble yourself before God and stop trusting your own self-worth, which is a myth, and stop trusting your own virtue, which is a larger myth, and stop trusting and, and, and seeking and pursuing the things of this world or your own agenda. And he's trying to draw you to Jesus Christ. And so that awful upset you're feeling in your heart and soul today is probably not the product of one of us. If it is, I'm sorry. But it's probably the Holy Spirit working with you and dealing with you. And I've got to say to you, before you ever meet the good news of the gospel, you've got to meet the bad news of human guilt. But once you do, and you swallow it and choke it down, then God comes through with grace. And that's what Jesus said the Holy Spirit will do in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. And then finally, verse number 13, there's some more good news here about the Holy Spirit. And that is, however, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. And so when you share the Word of Christ, you do not have to fear. The Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. And so Jesus here in this text says, I'm sending you the same way the Father sent me, and He sent me with the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's a second thing, and that is this. Like the Father, Jesus sends us with the promise of support. The Father sends us with the promise of support. Verse number 23 is a text that many have uh, misunderstood. They really shouldn't. Uh, There is something hidden in the English, uh, from the English reader that is actually in the Greek text. So I'm going to translate verse number 23 as we would read it if we spoke and read Koine Greek. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now that's what it says in the English translation. But in the Greek text, we could translate this. If you forgive the sins of any... They were already forgiven and stand forgiven now. If you retain the sins of any, they were retained and they are retained now. In other words, Jesus uses the perfect tense in the second part of each of these statements. The perfect tense makes a statement in the past that holds true for today. And so Jesus is using the passive voice of well for the action of God. So let me paraphrase verse 23. By the way, the word forgive is an uh, interesting word as well. We could paraphrase this word, witness to the gospel of forgiveness. And so Jesus is so emphatic about the connection between our witness and the forgiveness of the world that he calls evangelism forgiveness. Look what he says. 
If then you declare the gospel of forgiveness of sins to any, and they are forgiven, it's because God has already decided to come through and forgive them. If you retain the sins of any with silence, you see. And so what we're saying here is God is promising complete support whenever you come through with the gospel of Christ. Is precisely what He is promising here. In other words, when you share the gospel of Christ with others and you promise them if you repent and believe the gospel, God will forgive, then beloved, God comes through every time. God is not going to embarrass you by withholding His power and forgiveness and coming through with the promise of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, as you share my gospel, Jesus is saying, Spurgeon says, I will back up your message. When you share a pardoning blood, I will make it effective. When you declare to penitent sinners that their sins are remitted, it shall be so. When you tell those that believe not that they're condemned already, their sins shall still be retained. In other words, God will come through every time when you share the gospel. You tell them if you repent and believe, they will be forgiven. I will come through and I will forgive them. If you tell them that they will be condemned, that's precisely the state they will leave in when they reject the gospel of Christ. So you can rest assured, you can rest assured that God will forgive sinners when they embrace the gospel of Christ because this issue is already settled in heaven. God's not still trying to make up his mind how he's going to forgive sinners. It's already determined by the death and the resurrection of Christ. God will not fail you. God will not embarrass you. He will come through with the forgiveness that you offer. Now, now how would I ever know that? Well, at least a couple of reasons. One, he says it in his word. And God stands by his word. And I hope that we will learn the sufficiency of the word of God. But there's another way to tell that God forgives sinners. And that is, he's forgiven them when you see a changed life. Well, you think about the shepherds. Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem. The time for her delivery came. And she delivered Jesus and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. And then heavenly host appeared to the shepherds, angels did, and they sang glory to God in the highest, peace on earth towards those with whom God's favor rests. And the angels announced to the shepherds, this day in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you who is Christ the Lord, and you'll find him in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. And so they left immediately. They went to see Christ to behold him, and they saw him, and they left rejoicing with great joy. They met the forgiveness and the gospel of Jesus Christ and their lives were changed in at least three ways, those shepherds. One, they had a new humility. The angel said, you need forgiveness because you need a Savior and a Savior has been born not merely to the world. A Savior has been born not merely to Israel. A Savior has been born to you because you need a Savior. In other words, they embraced the angel's message. It was personal. It was direct. And they needed that they had a new humility. Whenever someone comes to Jesus Christ, that person stops blaming the world, stops blaming their spouse, stops blaming their mother-in-law, and takes responsibility for his or her own iniquity and sin. That's the first thing. That's what the shepherds have got here. But there's a second thing. They said in verse 15, let us go to Bethlehem. Without any prompting from any other human being, they had new desires for the things of God. They had a new desire for worship. They had a new desire to see Christ. They had a new desire to identify publicly and openly with the people 
of God. When someone comes to Jesus Christ, they have those new desires unprompted by human beings. Now, sometimes we need to prompt each other. That's why we preach and teach the Word. That's why we admonish. That's why we engage in the ministry that we do. But when we prompt other believers, we're doing and prompting them to do what's already in their heart. They're convinced already in heart and mind they need to do what is in the Word. And they, uh, they've got that in their heart. There are new desires from the heart. And then Luke chapter 2, verse 20 says, They left that scene glorifying and praising God. In other words, the reality, the news, the gospel, the birth, the uh, whole event of Christ did something to their heart and made them joyous. They had joy that Jesus Christ had come into the earth and that the King of Kings was now making progress. Not like the one woman who was uh, at a uh, particular uh, public location. She saw a manger scene uh, during Christmas and she said, my goodness, look now, now the Christians are taking over Christmas. Not like that. There is no opposition in the heart of a new believer to anything that, is the, that happens to belong to God. Someone that has come to know Jesus Christ as Savior is thrilled with the act and the movement and the works of Jesus Christ and the fact that He makes progress. Paul put it this way. He said, If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. No change, no forgiveness. If there's forgiveness, there will always be change. That's how we know God has come through with His gospel. Now today, what God has done in our Sunday school hour and what God has done in this worship service, despite the weaknesses of the preacher and the rest of us, is that He has accompanied the message with the power of the Holy Spirit. And today He promises support. And that is, if you'll repent and believe the gospel, God will immediately, instantaneously, and eternally cancel the courts send debt, or excuse me, debt, uh, death penalty against you today because Christ has died, has been buried, and raised again from the grave. God will come through for you today if you'll rush and run and fly and flee and give yourself to Jesus Christ today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And as we sing, we're going to stand and our staff will be standing here in front. And I want you to make your way down one of these aisles. Friends will step out of the way in the pew if, uh, if you need them to. You come meet a staff member here today and share your spiritual need. And we'll be glad to introduce you to Jesus Christ. We're merely helpers. The one that you're really dealing with today is God. But His Holy Spirit is drawing you. He's moving you to come to Jesus Christ perhaps for the first time. He's moving you, if you already have, to meet Him in the baptistry and to go public for Jesus Christ. To put on the team uniform for Christ, which is baptism. He's calling some of you to become part of this church and to move not only your letter but your life to this place and to give your all to Jesus Christ through the ministry of the local church. Maybe God is calling you to ministry or missionary service. He wants you to come. We want to be a help. Would you quickly stand with me, please? We're going to pray and we're going to respond. Father, we thank you for the good news of Christ today, and we ask that you would come through with power and glory for Jesus Christ. Please exalt his name and magnify him in our midst today as we yield and surrender everything to you. Help friends to repent and place faith in the gospel of Christ. Those that have to follow you in baptism and or church membership. You may be calling some today, God, to serve as missionaries or in some form of ministry, and I pray, dear God, that they will come. Thank you that anyone that calls on Christ today will find 
that Jesus will make it all right. And we pray for that now. Now again, let me remind you, we're going to sing a song and we're going to ask you to come from where you are. Meet a staff member here and we'll be glad to help you with your spiritual need. Tim, lead us in singing and you come as he does. You come.